Welcome to Mentoring Moments. Mentoring Moments is a sub-series of the E-Commerce Edge podcast. It is composed of clips taken from Jason's one-to-one and group mentorship sessions. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Pod. It is my great honor to welcome Adam Kitchen from Magna Monster to the podcast. Welcome, Adam. Appreciate it, mates. Good friends of yours. Please don't need any introduction. May, I'm so glad to have you here. We've been talking about this. It's ridiculous, actually. I think we've been talking about doing a podcast episode together for at least two years. How bad is that, that it is now early part of 2024, and we're finally able to make this happen. We have, a, we have a lot of mutual connections. We're in a couple of mutual, I guess, groups, industry groups. We've supported each other and helped each other for a, a very long time. You're somebody in the industry that I truly respect that has built something from scratch in terms of the Magnet Monster Agency. I know how hard that is. I've helped to build agencies. I have, have built my own consultancy. So I have such respect for what you do and how hard you have worked to develop your skill set and your team because it's hard right you got to be the leader of a team you now instead of doing everything yourself have to teach other people how to do those things at a high level on behalf of your agency delivering true outcomes for your customers so man i'm stoked to have you along for the ride today it is absolutely the biggest challenge it's such a salient thing to bring up because obviously i'm representative of that methodology being passed down. And I think this is one of the big challenges any agency owner faces and they have to mature into is that actually now when the clients and the leads come through, they're not working with me, they're working with the team. And how do I transfer that knowledge and make sure that it's a good representation of the content that I file on a daily basis? So I know you go really deep on tech on a lot of things, but I would love to speak about some of the psychology and just managing the agency on a day-to-day basis. Lots of good stuff. Let's dive into it. Yeah, and look, that's why I wanted to have you on as a guest mentor for our Monday mentorship episodes, because I feel like, sure, everybody and their dog, to a degree, I get probably approached by three to four email marketing companies per week for one of a few things. One is, They'll email me and say, hey, can I take over your email marketing for you, basically? And I'm going, have you seen my content lately? Like, I can look after my own stuff. Like, I've got my own personal brand. I got my own pipeline. I do everything social, social. I'm my own pipeline. They haven't even looked at my profile. And they, they, they'll either spam me via email or they'll spam me via DM. The other one is, oh, hey, I see that you're an e-commerce consultant. I'm sure you offer email marketing services. You could white label our services. And I'm going, did you look at my website? First of all, I don't offer email marketing services. Second of all, I, I, I focus only on the tech aspect of the, the commerce stack. So yes, while I understand the tech, uh, the email marketing tech, while I understand marketing automation, and while I understand CDPs, how they have to be engineered as part of a holistic stack, how the data has to flow between them, how the triggers uh, have to flow between them, the difference between a transactional versus a campaign or marketing email, understanding all of that, how that works together from a workflow perspective and a data flow perspective, totally get that. But I don't offer the services that you offer. And so I feel like this industry, just getting into the psychology a little bit, before we even get into what you do in terms of direct client services, I feel like the people that offer email marketing services are often breaking every single rule of what I would consider the cardinal rules of email marketing. If you're going to do email marketing, first of all, know who the hell your customer is. Know if they're likely to be interested in your services. Make sure and tailor the message to you so that it gives you the best chance to be able to say yes to that email. 
And it feels, God, you are not a very good ambassador of your services when you're breaking every cardinal rule trying to reach out to me and get me to work with you. Yeah, look, we could write a book about fucking trash, cold, outbound email services. And we've been back and forth over this quite a bit. We've also spoke to people who have more of a, let's say, holistic approach to account-based marketing. And we can go up in B2B direction, D2C, but the reality is, Jason, from my perspective, and I don't say this in an egocentric way because I've got a huge amount to learn myself, is that email is actually a incredibly complex and very nuanced subject when you really get into things like deliverability and like the architecture around email. And there's not really a huge amount of true experts, and it's definitely not every Tom, Dick and Harry who pops up a Clavio agency. And not to say these people aren't decent performance marketers have some basic elements of understanding of psychology, but email is a very intricate channel that requires a lot of deep knowledge and you can't accumulate that over six months or a year even. I've been doing this since I was 17. And as I said, I still feel like I'm learning a massive amount all the time. So yeah, there's a lot of cowboys out there. There's a lot of people just trying to make a living as well, which I respect. Email is an easy place to break into. We've seen how Clavio has really made the space commoditized in a sense of breaking into the industry and being able to sell because you have these one-click integrations, which is fantastic for merchants because there's a low barrier to entry in terms of deploying what used to be quite cumbersome or just tech. But there's obviously been an influx off the back of that of people who really don't know what they're talking about from a D2C perspective and how it holistic in email, selling these services and overall just not understanding the full scope of play of how email plays a part within the ecosystem. Anyway, there's a lot of spiel and jargon in there, which I'm sure we can get more into, but that's my overall overarching feeling of the current state of the industry. I think you've nailed it. And I think there's still, apart from agencies like yours, and look, there, there are some really good email marketing agencies out there. So I'm not trying to tar and feather the entire industry with the same brush, because I think that would be unfair. And I think that now, as email marketing appears to be, at least from my perspective, evolving from marketing automation, it, it being the, the foundation of most marketing automation workflows within a brand, particularly e-commerce brands and particularly D2C and B2C e-commerce brands, I feel that with the loss of cookie capabilities, with the challenge of collecting zero and first party data today, I feel like email marketing is but a channel, is but a communication channel of one of multiple communication channels that should probably be used in unison off the back of proper CDP capability. And so I'd love to get your take on this because Clavio's making noise about introducing their CDP very late to the market. We've had Segment, we've had Lexer, we've had Map, we've had so many really good high quality CDPs come to the market over the last, say, five to six years. And they do things that Clavio has never been able to do. They go so much further than Clavio does. And in fact, some of those CDPs don't, aren't even able to send email. They still need to integrate with something like Clavio to actually send the emails based on the segmentation that they've created and, and all of the data that they have gathered. And some CDPs, of course, do have their own email sending capability and email analytics capability. The reality is I feel like, to a degree, the market has moved past pure standalone email-based marketing automation platforms. And we're now in an era where we're trying to collect as much zero and first party data that, as we can to leverage across all communication channels, not just email. Because we see now 
that there is a lot of direct mail companies out there now that can integrate with something like Klaviyo and become a physical mail node in a workflow, just like text messages now can be a node in a communications workflow. It's not just email. We've got all these channels that we can communicate through customers through, and yet so many brands think it's only email. And they just, they burn out that channel until they just see massive unsubscribe rates. So are you seeing that evolution in the email world too, where, sure, email is important. I don't think anybody would say it's not, but brands focus on it to the exclusion of all else, it seems. Yeah, look, there's a huge amount to unpack there, and I could probably speak about this subject for days, but to call the space, I am not the biggest email reader in the world, and I would guess a lot of the younger generation, maybe 50 to 70% of them will never open your emails. So I think that ties into the CDP conversation where typically, right, you have this customer journey where a customer purchases and then the whole retention marketing thing is now you can email them. When the reality is over half the recipients are just not engaged with email from the very first interaction that you send to them. So you have to look at things harmonious from what additional channels can you retalk people when you've acquired that data? And obviously email is the most logical one because it's highly profitable. It's that first touch points that you can communicate with people with. And it is a great revenue driver. We've seen SMS come into the scene. There's push notifications, there's direct mail. And I think that is why you're seeing these tools evolve from, okay, let's not just become an email service provider. Let's become this unified tech stack and Obviously, they're trying to amalgamate all these channels into one. And I think it makes sense to manage everything through one consolidated platform personally. I made a post about this on LinkedIn today. But then at the same time, I think you're also seeing these tools realize that total addressable markets, things like Clavio to capture that enterprise segment, they have to go into the CDP type capability. And it ties into things like you said, with cookies, et cetera. But the reality is they want to grab bigger brands, higher um, average order value from the people that they serve. And that's why they're moving into this space now. So I think logically, they are intrinsically tied together. And, but that's why you're seeing a lot of these tools that realistically were designed for SMB, right? Clavio is not enterprise software. It was never engineers or architects for this type of capability. And I think that's one of the problems that they're going to have is that as they try to move up markets, like fundamentally you were designed for that. So you grab massive market penetration serving small to medium-sized businesses, sub 10 million, maybe you can even say sub 5 million. And now all of a sudden you want brands to go over nine figures. There's a lot that needs to be unpacked there and probably re-engineered. And whether there's people that can come in and disrupt them, I'm sure there is going to be fascinating to see what happens in the next few years. And I think to your point, I think the one thing that Clavio has done better than just about anyone else I've ever seen in the industry, there's two things. One is when they first started out, they were incredibly humble. Like I've been working with Clavio before anybody even knew how to say their name. Because in the beginning, nobody knew how to say their name. Nobody knew who the hell they were. When I was selling Clavio into the ANZ market, to my clients in the ANZ market, Emarsis and Dot Digital were the, the, the big players in marketing automation, right? Clavio was a minnow. And I remember when I was considering an email marketing automation platform for Health Post, when I first started with them years ago, the reality is we looked at every single email marketing platform at, at the day. And we, we looked at, we actually had already been using MailChimp in the business and we knew it wasn't, it wasn't anywhere we're, where we were going. 
we we actually initially implemented Bronto, and then literally within six months of us implementing Bronto, they got acquired by NetSuite, and then NetSuite promptly put a bullet in their head, and so we had to migrate off of them, which was a pain because we spent three months getting onto Bronto and setting up all the workflows and getting all the data migrated into the platform, and it was a nightmare to then move off of them, and we ultimately moved to Klaviyo, but at that time, we considered Emarsis, we considered Dot Digital, we considered Klaviyo, and at that time, Klaviyo didn't even have a visual workflow builder at that point. That was pre-visual workflow builder. And they said, it's coming, it's coming. We're going to release that in the next 60 days. So if you come with us, we will have a, a very similar visual workflow builder to Dot Digital and Emarsis, which were way ahead of the game at that time. But they were also five times the price. That was the killer. At the time, those other marketing automation platforms were so much more expensive than Klaviyo and so much harder to use in some respects than Klaviyo. So what Klaviyo brought to the table at that time was a super cheap price with a very powerful product, very friendly sales engineers. Like their teams at that time were really humble. They were really like, they really worked hard for every single merchant they onboarded into the platform. They had very much a white glove service. It cost us almost nothing to get moved onto their platform. They did all the heavy lifting and it was a no brainer at that time. Now I feel, and, and again, this is gonna be a very politically incorrect thing to say, I feel like Klaviyo is so big now and they are ready to, to, to do their IPO that they went from this small, hungry, humble company to the 800-pound gorilla that we all love to hate. And I'm not saying we hate them because of their success. We hate them because in many respects, they have become so big and so powerful and so ubiquitous that they have total pricing power and they've jacked up their prices in, in, in anticipation of an IPO. And they've become arrogant in the same way that I think in many respects, Shopify has become arrogant. And maybe this is just what happens when companies become ubiquitous and they feel like they've got zero competition in the marketplace. Maybe this is just what happens. So I think there's a lot to admire about what they've done. And I don't disagree with anything that you've said. It's very easy to root for the on-stock in the beginning, but it's very difficult to maintain those behaviors as you climb to the top of the tree because... Again, they probably hit some type of limits where they realize that it's like any business owner, right? What got you from A to B won't take you from B to Z. And you have to evolve and become something that you weren't originally. And I think this is classic probably for any type of SaaS company, especially when they go towards ideal, is that you start catering to different type of clientele. And as you do that, you start to deprioritize the original people that built your business and created that advocacy of you. And there's a lot of people in that lower market se segment that will generate advocacy for you. And that's obviously one of the benefits of SaaS of going in a very low price point is that you can swallow up a lot of people and not necessarily will they drive a huge amount of incremental profits, but what they will do is give you good market penetration and a lot of words of mouth advocacy. And that is a very powerful train for many businesses, especially in SaaS to ride. It's just a shame that eventually that ride stops and then people who built that advocacy is started to cater to a different type of clientele. So I think in many ways, it's a logical business move. It's a shame that it happens, but yeah, don't try and stay true to your roots. Remember, built the company. And I can tell you as a Clavio elite owner, it's incredible when you go to these events and Clavio puts on phenomenal events how much positive advocacy and market sentiment Clavio has because to be quite frank, like apart from the fancy tag that we've got, 
you don't generally get anything for offering Clavio services or agency services to them. Like they've never gave me like an influx of leads. I've been promoting their business for five years and I've got shit really in return in terms of tangible financial outcomes. So the fact that they've been able to get people like me to advocate for them tells me, first of all, they've got an amazing product. They do have a really strong product and fair play for them to do that. Whether that will continue, every dog has its day. It's no longer the underdog. It is that 800 pound gorilla. I personally think you're going to see significant disruption coming. It's just inevitable. And I don't think they care so much, to be honest, because they're focused elsewhere. Now they are the MRCs, the dot digital. That's their focus. They don't give a shit. Or maybe that's the wrong thing to say, but they don't care as much because that's not what's driving their business forward anymore. Yep, they're moving up the enterprise stack, much like Shopify is trying to do. And I think that they're probably going to find some success there, but there's many more competitors in the enterprise space than they found in the SMB space. They didn't have as much competition at the time. In fact, when Bronto and a few of the other marketing automation platforms disappeared around that time, actually, you could argue that the amount of competition when they first entered the market actually decreased. In the first couple of years after they entered the market, there was a lot of competitors that just disappeared, whether they were swallowed up, amalgamated in, simply couldn't run their business in a sustainable way. There was a lot of competitors that went away and they had the playing field to themselves and what they were trying to do, which was quite unique at the time. And I think to your point, the other thing that we can take away from the learnings from Clavio, and then we'll move on to some other things, but I think here, this is a very important point that you made that every other SaaS player out there that's in the commerce space in any way needs to understand. Immigrate, uh, integrations will make you or break you. The reality is, especially if you're entering in the SMB space up to $100 million a year businesses, if you are not default integrated into most of the components they already work with or want to work with so that you become the default choice because there's no heavy lift to get you integrated into their business, you are going to struggle. The reality is every single major e-commerce platform out there Every single major marketing platform out there, whether it be uh, quiz commerce uh, platforms, whether it be post-purchase follow-up platforms, doesn't really matter what you think about in, for example, the Shopify stack of apps. Almost every single one of those has an out-of-the-box integration with Klaviyo so that it can take over all transactional email uh, opportunities. So the Yapos of the world, the FIFOs of the world, it, just UGC platforms, at, loyalty platforms, membership platforms, Inveterate, everybody integrates with Klaviyo because every merchant ultimately wants a single system that can send as close to 100% of their emails as possible so that they can get holistic send analytics and performance analytics across email, regardless of whether that's transactional or marketing. And I think that was just a genius move by Klaviyo. And they haven't built all these integrations themselves. As they've grown, everybody else says, we actually have to build an integration with Klaviyo, otherwise we are irrelevant. You've nailed it. It's table takes for success. As you pointed out, you have to integrate to Clavio now to get traction on your products as opposed to the other way around. And I completely agree with you that if you're building any new type of SaaS products, especially within the e-commerce space, your focus needs to be heavily from day one on integrations because I actually, again, I made a post about this today and I made a post the other week saying the main threat I perceive at least is your pop. And that's not because I think Yopo is necessarily have a superior or comparable email product. It's because they've got the resources and the team to rapidly build the integrations necessary to compete. So you look at things like reviews, loyalty, 
um, transactional comms with Wonderment, whoever else. Yo has the team to rapidly build those up to compete with Clavio, and that is the main USP and monopoly that Clavio have. They own the ecosystem. It's not about they have better segmentation options or a better AI subject line writer. They own the ecosystem, and the only way to compete is to say, okay, we can save you time, not just costs from migrating, we can amalgamate all your tech stack, your quizzes, your reviews, your loyalty, if you move to us. And until that happens, and I think it will happen because we're seeing we're in that generation now of no code, Shopify, one click, et cetera. They're going to own that monopoly and continue to dominate, but it is changing, definitely. What is your thought? B2C, D2C email, it's been done to death and talked about a lot. But one thing I wanted to cover off with you, which I don't see get a lot of play or airtime, is marketing automation for B2B brands, right? A lot of B2B brands, they have individual account managers, which just send individual one-off emails out of Outlook or out of Gmail to their customers with attachments and new drops and swatches and all these other things. And of course, then they have the field sales team that physically goes and maybe even prints a catalog, takes it to a, a, out on their field sales calls, that sort of thing. And so I see that there is this lack of understanding of the value and importance of email and CDP capability in the B2B world, because in the B2B world, by default, the business model means that we generally know our customers super well, right? They're in our ERP. In fact, for them to even be able to transact with us, they have to be in our ERP. They have their own catalog. They have their own pricing. They have an assigned account manager. They, you know, We know who these customers are, and generally those relationships are for the very long term. The, the AOVs and the CLV tend to be ultra high compared to the B2C uh, world. And as a result of that, I think that marketing automation and holistic marketing doesn't necessarily, okay, holistic, let me back up here, holistic digital marketing doesn't necessarily get as much attention in the B2B world as the B2C world. But I think that now, because a lot of B2B brands are realizing, hey, we don't offer e-commerce today, we have to. We saw what happened during COVID. We saw that our field sales team couldn't go and see customers on site. We saw that we didn't have any digital channels, or if we did, maybe we had EDI for our largest customers, but we had no self-service e-commerce capability in the business. And that's a lot of the brands I'm working with today are getting them up and running on e-commerce for the very first time in the B2B world. But when it comes to marketing, many of these B2B brands don't even have a marketer in the business. They've got maybe a, a head of sales. They might have a, a head of ops but they might not have a single marketing resource in the business. So for them, they've never thought about email marketing in the same way that B2C brands do. Are you seeing the same thing? 100% yes. And it's funny, actually, we worked or we spoke to a prospect today. They're very close to closing and they have two components to their business. They have the D2C and they also have B2B. And we're taking over their B2B marketing strategy for email, which actually excites me more than the D2C side because I've done D2C email so much at this point. And the thing is, I'm not someone who has a huge amount of experience in the last five years, I will say, with B2B because our agency is geared up towards D2C. However, we have worked with B2B clients and I come from a background of running B2B marketing automation through active campaign. Definitely smaller businesses and more lower AOV items, not huge industries, but anyway, it's irrelevant. And... The general modus operandi for these companies is like you said, they have the sales rep who's fumbling around, trying to get to grips with the technology, quite resistant to it because like you have mentioned before, they perceive it as a threat or they have somebody who 
is using very rudimentary tactics, like just absolutely pulling the whole database, which there isn't a huge amount of people for a lot of these companies to begin with, with very generic blanket messaging. So there's definitely a very strong use case um, and prospect of this new positioning position, sorry, opening up, whether it's sales reps and B2B having to evolve to become more savvy with CRMs or marketing automation or just a new position within B2B commerce as an industry, like B2B CR experts, which it's crazy really when you think of the opportunities in B2B that this is not really like a sought after or dedicated position, at least to my knowledge, whereas D2C, again, every Tom, Dick and Harry has an email loss or a lifecycle automation marketer. And if you look at the richness of zero policy, first policy data, like extensive notes that a lot of these sales reps and B2B people keep on their customers, I would love nothing more to fucking get stuck into all this juicy info and sell to these people and nurture them. But yeah, it's just left on the side and given this blanket messaging treatment, which is really sad, but a huge opportunity for people who are willing to disrupt it. You have just called it in the sense that like when I go into these businesses, usually when they call me into consult, say on e-commerce, first of all, oftentimes I end up consulting on their entire business stack because they need a new ERP, they need a new CRM, they're using 20-year-old technology across their entire businesses. And, and then they say, oh, we want to execute at a high level on e-commerce. Jeez, we need to kind of build the foundation first so that you even know what it's like to sell through digital channels and get your data ready. But usually when I ask them, I say, show me a sample of your customer data and show me a, a sample of your product data. I can usually immediately point out to the business where they're having existing operational challenges in the business and where they're going to have their first set of challenges in the digital world. And so usually we've, we, we need to work through a, a system of harmonizing the data, streamlining the data, getting it organized consistently, rationalizing the data sets, making sure it's coming from similar sources, making sure the product hierarchies are structured the same way, have the same uh, attribute structure, making sure it's consistent in a way that makes sense in a digital buying journey. But it's also the same with the customer data. Sometimes I get into these businesses and I look and I go, oh my God, the amount of data you have on these customers, like you said, I, I think D2C brands would murder to have this level of data because they don't just have organizational data. They have data on every single approved buyer within that organization as an individual person that then rolls up into the organization level data set. It is phenomenal. It is absolutely phenomenal the amount of data that, that B2B brands ha have on their buying orgs and the employees of those buying orgs to where if they wanted to, they could completely tailor the messaging to the individual buyer within those organizations at, at a level that you just never see in, in the DDC world. Because oftentimes in the DDC world, a customer is a customer once. The statistics are, yeah. so it depends on the region of the world, but still to this day, somewhere between 70 and 80% of DDC customers will only buy from your brand once, no matter what you do. That is a big challenge. It's a massive challenge and you absolutely hit the nail on the head. And it's so fascinating because a lot of the opportunities, and I've been guilty of this in the past of making email for D2C quite convoluted because I like to experiment with a lot of strategies. But one of the things that we have done in our experience for B2B is remove that friction and skepticism that these salespeople have from marketing automation, replacing them and actually making it complementary to the jobs that they're trying to do. For example, 
If you think of an abundance course in a typical D2C flow, right? It's your general, you left something behind. Here's 10% off. Yada, yada. We've all seen it. Like it's pretty much the same across the board. With B2B, you can actually trigger more sophisticated workflows where you pull in all the data and then say, for example, to the sales rep, follow up with the sales call. Here's the data. Here's what they has in the basket. It's so much more effective and personalized than the ROI from actually investing in those type of activities where you marry up the offline to the online. It's just a huge opportunity. So you can get much more sophisticated and those type of strategies that sometimes when you implement them for D2C, it ends up being overreaching and just not worth the juice worth the squeeze for B2B. It absolutely is because like you pointed out before, the lifetime value of those customers and just the overall familiarity with the brand is much higher. So there's lots that can be done with B2B marketing automation. Hey team, I have a big favor to ask you. Please pause this episode and send the link of this episode to someone you know that you think would enjoy this content. Really appreciate you spreading the word. This is how we grow. We're not a Joe Rogan. We don't have big, massive advertising budgets, but we absolutely want to grow. We want to get the learnings from all of these episodes out to as wide of an audience as possible, and we need your help to do it. Thank you, and now back to your listening. I think, and I'd, I'd love your take on this, I think one of the challenges with B2B marketing automation, however, is that unlike the D2C world where there's standardized systems for help desk, for example, Gorgeous, I think owns something like now 80% of the help desk installations in e-commerce in the D2C, B2C world. And so therefore, because they have an automatic integration with Klaviyo, you can pull in a lot of profile level information from from Gorgeous, from returns and uh, specific inquiry types and everything else. All that can be brought in against a Klaviyo profile as a Klaviyo profile property. But in the B2B world, it's almost always a CRM and very few CRMs have a native integration with Klaviyo. And so I believe that to get the most out of any marketing automation platform in the B2B world, there's going to be some bespoke integrations. There's going to be some bespoke, as Klaviyo calls them, metrics. They are, Klaviyo loves to call things specific things that are quite unique to them. But really, at the end of the day, we have triggers that will trigger off an action within the marketing automation platform. And that's what Klaviyo calls a metric. And usually in the B2B world, I think we would need to plumb in some very specific metrics from the, the operational CRM inside of a, a B2B brand so that we can get that same level of automation, get that same level of profile enrichment, et cetera. Because again, as you point out, Klaviyo's very B2C, D2C focused, and they're very SMB focused historically. And as a result of that, the whole entire stack and the ecosystem wrapped around them is not a B2B ecosystem. It's not a B2B technology ecosystem. So do you find that when you're starting to work with B2B brands, that one of the first things you have to look at is how can we get this data either exported via CSV and then re-imported into Klaviyo manually, or how can we create an integration which can trigger some of these workflows in the right way? And it's a little bit more of a heavy lift to integrate that into B2B than B2C, right? Clavio is not built for B2B commerce. It's as simple as that, really. I think if you want to boil it down and call it a space, that type of profile richness and open-ended information that you need to pull in. Clavio works best off close-ended custom properties. And with B2B, that's sort of the opposite. You want heavily personalized richness of information. You start pulling in like paragraphs of information to Clavio. And you will see it's just not architectured correctly to pull in that type of information. In fact, it will grind to a screeching halt. So I think trying to make workarounds when a tech just isn't set up for it is a loss. Either I personally would not do it. 
And I think there needs to be some consideration for a different type of platform. What that is, I'm not entirely sure. I'm not a B2B automation expert. It's the same systems, right? You can implement different platforms, but I'm not sure off the top of my head. I know Active Campaign was actually a lot better, even though that's built for small to medium-sized businesses. That can definitely handle some of that functionality that you talk about. I don't know if serious scale, but um, that's a good solution. And yeah, the reality is we're talking about B2B commerce, marks and automation, Clavio, it's not built for it. And I would look for something else. Yeah, no, and look, I, I appreciate the honesty and the transparency, and that's where I think CDPs really come into their into the fore, right? Because they can take these large bodies of data, and I, I think Clavio will get there with AI and everything else, but what they can do is they can parse large, complex pieces of unstructured data really give them like a tag cloud associated with that unstructured data, add those as structured profile properties that then can do other things. But to your point, Clavio only works with stru structured customer data. It cannot work with unstructured data. Just can't do it. You have to pre-parse the unstructured data before you push it into Clavio, And you have to be very specific because it has to be a one-to-one -one mapping between that data and the profile properties that you've pre-configured as being available in Clavio. So the, the reality is that you, 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 it, it doesn't do well in an unstructured data environment, which is totally fine. Use hammer for nails. You don't use a hammer for screws. So yes. I think what you're trying to say is you need to pick the right tool for the job. And when you're going into the B2B world, sometimes those D2C tools can port straight over. Sometimes you need to pick a different tool. You've absolutely nailed the, you've hit the nail on the head. It's not built for it trying to work around that facts and develop these cumbersome workflows will just give you a lot of headaches. I have made this mistake in the past. I've tried to integrate C2B solutions into Clavio. I've ended up, to be completely frank, damaging accounts, which I hold my hands up for because I tried to make the system do something it wasn't capable of. And in the process, I ended up with a lot of profile duplication, really slow systems, workflows triggering the wrong way. And it's not purely down to bad QA. It's just trying to make something, as I said, do something that it's not capable of doing. So yeah. To close the loop on this conversation, if you want marketing automation software that ties in this type of CRM, CDB capabilities for B2B solution for you, at least right now. And what do you see? Because you audit a lot of email accounts. So let's even just look at it through the D2C, B2C lens for today, because that's the bulk of your business. Now, oftentimes I'm guessing, what's the split? My question would be, what's the split? When clients come to you, how many of them have been doing it perhaps in-house or working with another agency versus setting it up for the very first time? I'm guessing that you're the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff for a lot of these brands that come to work with you for the very first time. How often do you get into their accounts and you see the same repeated mistakes over and over again and you go, man, if we could have just gotten to this client before they set up Clavio the first time around, we would have much better data to work with today. And now we've effectively got to restructure half of this bloody account to get, A, start collecting data in the right way, but also start leveraging it in the right way and, and stop burning our list through batch and blast. How, how many of these times do they come to you? And I'm sure that you don't see that many startup brands. A lot of them are established brands that have been trying to do email marketing well for a very long time. I'm guessing you see a lot of the same mistakes over and over again. Yeah, so I think there's a lot to unpack in that question that you've asked, but generally speaking, funnily enough, the more advanced and higher up the revenue chain a brand is, 
generally the more problems that they have. And the reason being is that they've just got more data inside the account and more data tends to correlate with more messy problems that need to be sorted out. Common issue is profile duplication, lists and managing consents just all over the show completely. In turn, that will affect your deliverability. So inbox providers like Gmail, Yahoo, Outlook, et cetera, don't like it when you're a bad sender. And it's impossible to be a good sender if you're not organized with data. So even basic shit like having a naming convention or having a source property attached to where you bring in leads, not emailing people who are unsubscribed. These are all things that actually can become quite challenging when you get bigger, because a lot of the time, unless you have someone who developed that architecture from the beginning, you have people who are parachuted into the job and they're covering up for three years of bad mistakes and bad habits. And by that time, it's already an established revenue channel. So it might not be optimized to the capabilities, but a lot of the time when you have to fix email issues, you have to stop the, the clot. And the only way to do that is to cut off a revenue stream. And a lot of brands are just not willing to do that. So the problems just persist and they get worse and worse. And then they're not able to generate the type of returns that they should from email. So I would say actually people with the most problems are the bigger brands and they're the ones who start to gain the most through fixing those problems because a small 10, 20% improvements in inbox placement can have a massive incremental lift, but they're also the ones who will bleed the most in the short term as well. So they're less likely to address those problems and just persist with bad habits. It's a mixed bag to answer the question. A lot of established brands have in-house teams and those in-house teams sometimes do a good job, sometimes do a shit job. They will then call us up and we're like a poor consultant, or maybe we'll just take over the account completely. And a lot of new brands just don't know what they don't know. So like they don't have any type of automation set up or definitely a lot of low hanging fruit and they might have rudimentary campaigns, but there's not as much to fix because they haven't established so many bad practices for such a long period of time. So overall, a complete mixed bag. You don't know what you're going to get when you go inside an account. And I suppose that's one of the things that keeps it exciting after so many years. And how often do you see issues with lack of a dedicated sending domain, lack of a dedicated sending IP, horrible DNS record setup? When we think about all of the things that you need to get right just to have a chance to get in somebody's inbox and how easy it is to get it wrong and then get either your domain blacklisted or to get your IP blacklisted. There's just, there's so many seemingly simple things about email that if you get them wrong, you can almost harm your email channel forever without having to start over from scratch and rebuild from scratch. How often do you see situations where, oh my God, they've just, they've such, they, they've so damaged their sending reputation on an existing domain or subdomain that they have to go backwards before they can go forwards. So things like DMARC, DNS, and all these type of acronyms, these were like foreign entities two to three years ago. And I think one of the interesting things is in the last two years, we've just seen these discussions become more prevalent. And the reason being is because basically the algorithms of these inbox providers are becoming much stricter on senders. And because it's such an important revenue channel for D2C, B2B, commerce, that actually a lot of tools like Clavio or putting a massive amount of resources into education and investing and making sure that the customers are aware of these things. When it comes to a setup level, 
So when I first started using Klaviyo, it was like shared Klaviyo IP domain, whack everything in, get your account started with it, then really start sending. It's not like that anymore, or at least there are a lot more prudence to make sure that you're set up in the right uh, from an infrastructure level in the beginning. And they have to be vested in that process as well, because if you don't get an ROI from the platform, then obviously you're not going to use it. So again, these were very complex technical subjects and they still can be, they sound rudimentary to a lot of people who have a tech background, but actually they can be really overwhelming when you don't know anything about them. But we're seeing actually more people now educated about them and more prudent. I think in fairness, most of the ESPs do a good job at hammering home their importance because they've got no choice, right? If you don't take them seriously, you're not going to get an ROI from the platform. Yeah. So, yeah, it's moving in a positive direction, I would say, on the deliverability front. That's so good to hear because I remember even a few years ago that people had no idea what the concept of warming up an IP was, warming up a domain. They had no concept. And when I would start to work with some of these businesses, even when I even when I started at, at Health Post and some of the other brands that I worked very closely with and some of my clients from my agency days, a lot of them, you, you mentioned some of these things to them. And, and because they, even if you're not their email marketing agency, when you go into for example, implement a new e-commerce platform for them, you get blamed for absolutely everything related to e-commerce. If their email performance drops off, if their performance marketing drops off, they'll blame you for absolutely everything, even if you only just were the one that built their website. So they, they almost to a degree want a single throat to, to choke, right? Which is understandable. If they don't understand who's guilty, who the guilty party is, they shoot first and ask questions later if their revenue falls off a cliff. So they that's, that's completely understandable. I completely get that. But unfortunately, sometimes they're barking up the wrong tree if the technical setup, uh, now obviously the technical setup of the e-commerce site also has to be right so that you don't lose domain authority, so that you re retain your search rankings, all that sort of stuff. And as you know, just like when you make major changes to the email configuration of a platform, there's usually a dip before there's a rise. And it's the same. when you, Even if you put really good 301s in place when you replatform a website, the reality is you're usually at a dip in the SEO rankings until everything starts to be shunted in as a native URL that is not subject to a 301 inside Google. And until that those are fully indexed, natively indexed against your domain, you're going to see a dip. That's the reality. And, and there's no two ways around that. And so how often do you guys find a challenge where you're saying you have to tell them, you have to give them that warning up front. Okay, you're coming to us. We're going to be making some substantial changes to your Klaviyo account. As a result of that, you're probably going to see a dip in ROI before we see a sustained rise because we now have to bed all of these changes in. We have to continue to optimize based on the new settings, and it's just going to take some time to start collecting the data in the way that we need to collect it to be able to further optimize the account. Yeah, it's a fascinating subject, and we really go into the weeds on deliverability and that scenario that you just described is the nightmare for any agency or email marketer because time to value, you know yourself, Jason, we're a service provider. It's a critical way of rotation and building. When you are going into the account, it's like the first thing you're going to do is reduce revenue in such a stress industry like e-commerce where there seems to be a constant anxiety and stress of daily cash flow management, inventory, and financial forecasting and then going up and down. It really is an industry, I think, where we're all addicted to stress to some degree, to then tell people to lower their expectations rather than have them really high is a very difficult thing to do. It's the right thing to do. I'm a big believer in playing the long game. And if that results in some acute short-term 
pressure and issues, then you just have to go through with it. And I've seen some clients we have over Black Friday say to one of our strategists, actually, where oh, we want you to send to a bigger group of people in these segments. And we're okay if we harm, we're all delivered because we just really need their money right now. And you deal with that a lot. It is what it is. What if I say, no, we're not going to do that. And we can walk away from principle. But the reality is we're an agency. We want to be paid. As long as we make them well aware of the implications of doing that, then you're always trying to manage politics in the process of driving results. And that's another topic we could get into some points, but the law of the agency game, right? It's not like delivering your subject matter expertise and performance. Actually, it's managing the law of politics between different departments. It's just part awesome what comes with the job. Yeah, I never like to cry about an industry that I chose to get into, but client services is one of the hardest businesses in the world when you're trying to balance delivering quick wins against low-hanging fruit as best you can, whilst also explaining what the long-term game plan is, what the long-term roadmap is, and the potential consequences of any decision ultimately that the client makes. You want to make you, you want them to at least make fully informed decisions, if nothing else, and you want to document the fact that they chose to go this route. Maybe we made a set of recommendations. They choose, chose to take two out of the five recommendations, and that's fine. But ultimately, it, it's a hard conversation to have, right? It's, and, and sometimes you get down to a place where you have to put everything in writing. You have to put everything in email. You have to put everything in Asana, your project management system. You have to, put, you have to keep everything in writing so that if there is comeback, when there is the inevitable comeback, and they say, why didn't you warn us? Why didn't you tell us? Why, why didn't you tell us to go a different direction? Well, actually, Actually, we did. And it's, it's a hard conversation to have to basically say the blame game because they're blaming you and you're trying to say, well, actually, we did have this conversation three months ago, but you decided to go a different direction, which we're never going to say that you can't make your own decision. You absolutely can. It's your business. But now we're collectively going to have to deal with the consequences of this. You and us together as a partner are going to have to deal with the consequences of this. And this is just the, this is what, what we're going to have to do. And it's a hard thing to say because it sometimes feels like you're shooting yourself in the foot not to take the blame for everything. But the reality is you just have to be honest and you just have to be transparent. And I feel like those of us that have been in the game longer than a day, we know that, right? I've been in the game over 20 years and I have seen a lot of agencies, a lot of partners, a lot of brands be quite deceitful with each other in the pursuit of a short-term relationship to get them over the line, even to the point where I see some agencies running down other agencies and saying, oh, no, they're shit. You should definitely come and work with us. And in many cases, the reality is it's just a conflict of personality and goals. And sometimes, you know, the, there are a lot of brands that just agency hop, that the grass always looks greener. Yeah. And sometimes it's not the agency's fault. The agency's done absolutely the best they can to make that client happy. And there's this final saying, and I'd love to get your take on this. Familiarity breeds contempt. The reality is sometimes an agency could do just about everything right, but at the end of a five-year run or when the key employee of the brand that they were working with leaves and goes somewhere else and, and a new person comes in to head up operations, all of a sudden they want to bring in their favorite, right? And so sometimes you can do absolutely everything right and you're still going to get escorted to the curb. Yeah, it's classic shiny object syndrome. It's Paul and Paul Smith running an agency and why we can never, any of us, stop doing sales because you can never take anything for granted and you can think you're providing the best service in the world, but eventually you're going to encounter change and people just like change at some point. So a um, couple of key things I'd want to quickly point out is that number one, if you're an agency, you've got to manage expectations in the beginning. That is absolutely critical. So if you are going to do something that will potentially drop revenue in the short term, you better be buzzy up front and really frank that's going to happen. 
and you owe it to the clients to be completely honest to manage those expectations. And the second thing is that brands, I understand it's, there's a lot of pressure for short-term results, especially when it comes to revenue, but they're often conditioning an agency to look for short-term tactics and that's bad for both parties. So all that to say, I think mutually you need to go into a relationship with a long-term view. And if you're working with an agency, try and get some type of roadmap or forecasting from them that takes into account these scenarios as opposed to what can we do this month to make a massive difference. We all want to drive huge, incredible returns. Time to value is a critical metric, but not at the expense of long-term outcomes. And that's always going to be a challenge for an agency. Couldn't agree more. And I think that's one of the reasons why I have appreciated moving more with a pretty laser focus on the B2B side, because you know, they tend, B2B brands tend to not be subject to things like seasonality. They tend not to be subject to high levels of competition in their market because they usually are quite specialized in their market, or maybe they're the only authorized distributor in a specific region or catchment, things like that. So they oftentimes have natural moats around their business that the DDC world just does not have. And also because usually projects in the B2B world aren't led by marketers. And, and that can make things somewhat easier in a way, only because a lot of what we do tends to be quite technical in nature, right? Whether we like it or not, tech underpins a lot of the services that we deliver to our clients and the way that their clients are going to be, the, the way our clients are going to be engaging with their consumers are through tech and digital channels. And as a result of that, what we deliver tends to ultimately be quite technical in nature. And if you're dealing with a marketer who has really specific marketing outcomes in mind, whether it be traditional marketing or digital marketing, the reality is they don't necessarily have an interest in the tech that is, it has to be enabled to make that happen. They aren't necessarily interested in the data that has to be collected to be able to make that happen. And therefore, they, they sometimes can have an unrealistic expectation, well, I want this to happen tomorrow. If I give you enough money, can you make this happen tomorrow? And the, the reality is it isn't always about the budget. It's, it's some of this stuff just takes time. The correct data collection just takes time. The, 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 the way in which we start to figure out the cadence that we need to connect with our customers on for the best outcome for them and for us, that takes time to assess. And it takes a hell of a lot of testing. It takes a lot of ABM testing to get to a place where we can make decisions with a high level of confidence. And so from my perspective, I think that, that there's this famous saying, marketers ruin everything. And it's only half true. It's, we say it tongue in cheek, but the reality is I 100% agree with you. I think that business leaders are going to have to continue to take a longer term view of things, especially as the world is moving to a much more of a privacy first place. As that continues to happen, those quick wins, the low hanging fruit, it's just not going to be as easy to collect anymore. We, we have to take a much longer term view of this. And I actually think it's forcing marketers, it's forcing operators to actually behave better. The expectation that someone is going to see an ad and convert within 30 days of seeing the ad, those days are gone forever. That's the reality. It, it is now much more of a nurture situation. It's much more how can we take someone – I don't really like the funnel analogy, but it's still out there in the world – taking someone that, that is not even in your sphere and is not even considering you, how can we get on their radar all the way to the point where they convert at the end of the day? Marketers and operators are going to have to understand that – consumers, whether B2B or B2C, have more choice than they have ever had before. And therefore, we have to build up an insane level of trust with those consumers before they will ever say yes to buying from us, and certainly before they will ever be a loyal long-term customer. I think what we've seen is a 
historical trends in the last decade at least in commerce where marketers were able to run on performance strategies and help bad businesses thrive or at least survive and do reasonable amount to make the owners enough money. Now we're seeing the paradigm shift to business fundamentals from the owners needs to filter down to the marketers. So it's not enough now to have good marketing. There needs to be solid business fundamentals underpinning that business model. And what you've just pointed out essentially is some of those changes have really expedited that change. And the old days of just throwing up ads on Facebook and cashing out, so they're long gone. Now you need to have product stickiness built into it so it drives lifetime value. You can't just rely on marketing alone to help you scale profitably. So it comes back to, yes, a lot of agencies have missold brands, but a lot of brands have placed this short-term gratification from driving fast revenue through shitty tactics on agencies and condition this type of behavior. So I think you're going to see a new generation of more astute marketing agencies and marketers in general who have more financial chops, speaking, but also work with people who are more strategic, who own these companies, who understand that it's a longer term play in e-commerce in general. Couldn't agree more. And as we come to the close of our time together, and I really do appreciate the time, Adam, that you shared with me today. If a brand, let's say they're doing e-market, email marketing today, or some form of marketing automation today in their business, and let's say they've got an in-house resource doing that, and they don't necessarily can't put their finger on why they think that their email marketing maybe isn't performing as well as it could or it should. What do you think are some of the very first steps, apart from coming and working with an agency like yours, of course, that's a natural kind of uh, getting some external support and external capability injected into the business and some transfer of skills into the business is always important. But if they want to start thinking about what can I do to think more holistically about my email marketing, what are one, two, or three things that I can begin with to try to identify, even if I'm doing, what are the metrics I should even be looking at to, to, to say whether I'm doing a good job or not today with email marketing? So I would focus explicitly on two things. Number one, are you acquiring enough customers consistently to support email scaling the performance? Because email is intrinsically tied to acquisition. If you want to talk exclusively about D2C, like you pointed out, Jason, earlier on, 70 to 80% of consumers are never going to buy again. If you're not continuously acquiring a lot more customers on a monthly basis, then you're never going to see incremental lift from email. So you have to have a steady top of the funnel acquisition strategy going on at all times. And if you're not seeing that, then obviously you need like incredible lifetime value built into the product. And not the emails don't drive lifetime value, having a great product and customer experience does. So that's the first thing is look at your acquisition, make sure you're acquiring the right type of customers and make sure that you are consistently acquiring consistent cohorts and that you're able to scale email that way. That's number one. Second one is obviously deliverability. So if you all have a database that is increasing in size and you have a net active subscriber base gongle, then theoretically, yes, you should see an incremental lift from email revenue because you have more active customers to email. If you're not seeing that, then obviously you need to do an analysis on your deliverability or you ending up in spam. You got bad inbox placement with certain providers. If so, dissect that because you should see, like I said, theoretically that email revenue gongle. So they're the two things. Make sure you're acquiring more customers and make sure you have strong deliverability. If you just do those two basic things, which in high, they are hard to execute. 
you will see email performance scale. You don't need super sophisticated strategy. You just need good, clear content, consistent cadence, communicating with your customers and just clear offers because let's be honest, email is not the most complex channel in the world. Yes, there's some complex technicalities, but customers already know you. It's quite easy to drive predictable revenue from email because you've already sold to them in the past and that's how you acquired them on your database. And as we come to the to the end of our time together, you, you know the drill. I love to hand the microphone over to my guests. I'd love to let them basically flip the script and ask me one question, any question they like, can be personal or professional. So Adam from Magnet Monster, what is your question for me today? I would like to ask you, is Mexico a long-term destination for you or is this just temporary for the next yet? It is at this stage, it's planned to be long-term. We don't have any intention of moving anywhere else at this stage. It's still early days. We've only been here just under a year. We're moving to Puebla more long-term. We think it's a place we can make a really beautiful life in. Uh, remains to be seen though. You can think a place is perfect, but until you've lived there for six, 12 months, 18 months, it's really hard to know for sure. I, I experienced this once already, moving from the United States to New Zealand and living there for almost 30 years. I, I don't know how it is for most people that shift countries to live, but it took me probably five to six years moving after I moved to New Zealand until I felt like I was really I felt almost like a local. I felt like I knew the lay of the land. I had traveled around the country several times. I felt like I knew how Kiwis behaved, how they did business. I, I felt like I knew how the country run and how the culture, how I could integrate myself into the culture without being just one of those loud, arrogant Americans that comes in and expects every place we go to to be like America. I, I felt like it took me a little while to just observe and learn and take everything in and say, okay, this is very different to the place I came from, but that doesn't make it bad or good. It just means that it's different. And these people live a different lifestyle to what I grew up with. And they, live, they grew up in a very isolated country at the bottom of the world. And so they develop ways of interacting with the world, which is quite different to how I grew up in the United States. And, and even just from a population perspective, it being a fraction of the population of America, it took me time to have enough empathy with myself but also empathy with all those that were around me to say, look, there's going to be a learning curve here. And even though they speak English, and so that the language issue wasn't as much of a barrier, sometimes it was even difficult just to understand because of the accent and because of the word choice, the vocabulary choice. There were certain words that were used locally that I had never heard used in that way before. So it took me a little bit of time to pick up like the local lingo and the jokes and the, just the sense of humor and the sport and the, how seriously the country takes cricket and rugby and just the things that are part of the fiber of New Zealand and things like Kiwis looking forward to beach and barbecues in summertime coming from the United States. That was Christmas was not time for beaches and barbecues. And so it's all those little subtle nuances that take so much time to appreciate. It took me probably five or six years before I felt truly comfortable in that environment and like I could fit in and like I could contribute to my local community as a result. And I know because in Mexico, not only do I have to think about all those things and how I can assimilate into the community and how I can and how I can how I can help my community because it's 82 percent Roman Catholic in Mexico. So in Mexico, the three priorities are God, family, community in that order that those are the really the the fiber uh, from what I can tell so far. And admittedly, I've only been here just under a year, but it seems like those three things are just such a massive priority. Uh, in this country that I have to really figure out ways in which 
instead of being disruptive, how I can contribute. How can I contribute to this country? How can I contribute to my local community without just being a gentrifier, without just being this foreigner that comes in and, and takes everything they possibly can from where they are? I actually want to be a contributor too. And I'm still trying to figure out how I can best do that in a language that I'm not expert at yet. Sure, I'm conversational. I can do transactions in Spanish, but I'm not fluent by any stretch of the imagination. And so uh, I know that's a long-winded answer, but my goal is to not be someone who comes in with an arrogant attitude and just wants to change everything and make it like where I came from. That's not my goal. Sure, I want to help and sure, I want to contribute wherever I can, but sometimes it's just acceptance and saying, this is Mexico. This is how they do things here. You better just get on with it. You better just accept it and move on with it because if you don't, you're going to live a life of frustration and especially things that you have no hope of changing. Like when I think of some of the things with government bureaucracy and things like that and the way that the government operates, I am never going to influence that. So the reality is I better just shut up, go through the process, appreciate the process for what it is and, and get on with my life. And so that's what I'm, that's what I'm honestly trying to do the longer that we live here. And Bruce Lee said, be like water, adapt to where you are. And I couldn't agree more. My experience with travel replicates that. It's nothing worse than being in Thailand for me or when I was in Hong Kong and having a bunch of British people go over and moan about how everything over there was not like it is in the UK. It's fuck me, go home then. It's yeah. our job to contribute to places we move to because they've accepted us. And I love that hierarchy that you said Mexico has of God, family, community, great framework to follow. And I think we do well in all businesses and put ourselves in a position of strength and you're in a good place to give back to the community. So I think that's a salient message to end on. And that's my goal as well, to be in a position of strength to give back to people. 100%. Adam, absolutely love this conversation. How do you like people to get a hold of you? I'll put links to your LinkedIn profile as well as the Magnum Monster website in the show notes. But how do you uh, typically, if, if someone wants to reach out, learn more about email marketing and how they can do it the right way, how do they find you? Yep. So as you said, LinkedIn, I'm very active on there. I'm a pest. I'm posting content every single day. Otherwise, email at myatmicromonster.co.uk. Absolutely love it, brother. Really appreciate your time and can't wait to catch up with you again soon. This has been a long time in the pipeline and it is not disappointed. I appreciate it so much. My pleasure, mate. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to get mentored by Jason for free, head over to greenwoodconsulting.net, scroll to the bottom of the page and click Get Mentored by Jason.